From Gimlet Media, I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk with entrepreneurs, athletes, artists, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. So recently, I was walking home from work with my wife, Nazneen, as I do from time to time, recording our conversation. Uh, well, I'll just start with a biggie. This whole situation. Which whole? Which, which one? Just yeah. like... Us. Us. As in the fact that we are married and running a business together. The business of Gimlet, the company bringing you this podcast and many others. And if you're just joining this podcast for the very first time, there's this whole backstory here, which we've talked about on this podcast and other podcasts. But all you really need to know is that my wife and I, we work together at this company, Gimlet, a company that my co-founder Matt and I started a couple of years ago. And for Nazneen and I, working together at, at a startup, it's, um, it's a lot. I don't know what to say about it. It's, 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 a, it's a prison of our own making. <laughs> a prison. <laughs> say more about that. How do you feel trapped? Um, I've always, like, it's always been felt like such a relief in every other job I've ever had. Just to know, like, I can leave this tomorrow. I don't have to work here. Like, I'll, I'll find another, like, I have to work, but I'll find another. This is a bad time to try to record an interview. <laughs> New York City. Constant sirens that won't go away is like a good metaphor for <laughs> our lives. So, so wait, you were saying that like, yeah, you've always, always felt like you can leave. Yeah, I've always felt like I can, I can leave. And like, I didn't realize like what a freeing feeling that always was in my other jobs until now where like I can't, I could leave, but I still wouldn't escape <laughs> it's like the it's like being the mafia yeah like i'd have to really leave like i'd have to leave like our family <laughs> which i don't want to do <laughs> yeah. uh, you could leave but, but it would be a big it, deal yeah it would be like getting divorced if you left him yeah. sort of. yeah. i would feel guilty like leaving you i don't know like, just being like, see ya. Good luck. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean... Yeah. I feel the same way. The same oppressive feelings of Gimlet. And, like, it dominates our lives. And, like, we go to bed and that's what we talk about. And it's, like, it's really annoying. And so I have to remind myself not to talk about Gimlet, like, at times when I want to. Um, but the flip side is that it's just very comforting... To be, to be on it to, together. I feel the same way too. I get it. Yeah. Like I feel like I get it. I get it all. Yeah, it's complicated though. Yeah. Um, do you ever actually actually worry that, that that it could lead to us, that it could actually damage our relationship? Oh my God! I can't believe this is like the first conversation we're having on tape that I don't think we've actually had like in, at all in real life. <laughs> Do I worry at all that it could damage our relationship? Yeah. Yes, I ha Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Do you feel like it is now? Or do you just worry about it? No. I don't feel like it is now. Does it, does it feel unnatural, what, what we're doing? Unnatural? Like being married and being in this thing. It, it weirdly doesn't. Does it feel unnatural to you? No. Yeah, that's weird. Why is that, do you think? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know. It does that, that part doesn't, like, people are always like, oh, my God, you are married and you work together. I could never do that. The fact that we're married and we work together, it doesn't feel unnatural. No. It, it makes sense. Yeah. It seems, it seems fine. It doesn't feel unnatural, but it is pretty unusual. I don't know many people. In fact, I don't think I know anyone personally whose work life and home life are so bound together as mine and Nazneen's. And that is just one of the reasons I wanted to talk to today's guest. Her name is Katerina Fake. And today she runs a VC firm with her life partner. Earlier in her career, she was an entrepreneur and she founded a company with her then husband. That company was called Flickr. And during our conversation, she had a lot of really interesting insights on work and family and how those two realms can be merged. But I also want to talk to Katerina because over the course of her life, she's followed a really unique path. Today, she's widely recognized as one of Silicon Valley's leading visionaries. And I'm not just saying that. She actually won a visionary award. That was actually what it was called from this leading Silicon Valley nonprofit called the Silicon Valley Forum. But back when Katerina was just starting out, Silicon Valley royalty, that was the last place she expected to find herself. You know, I was, this is actually my last career. I was a uh, Renaissance studies uh, aficionado. I was, I was, I was planning on going into uh, academia. I'm an accidental technologist. Uh-huh. I, there were certain things that I loved about the internet that drew me to it. And it wasn't the technology itself. I had, I had two major interests. I was interested in Renaissance literature, and I was re- interested in postmodern literature, and I was reading a lot of Borges. And then I got online. I started communicating with a bunch of Borges lovers in Aarhus, Denmark. <laughs> and I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> Borges drew me to, to my career. Drew as a, me to as the a, internet. But it makes sense. Yeah. Think about it. Yeah. I don't know if you ever read any Borges, but Borges anticipated yeah. the internet. In his writing, right, uh, the, the Library of Babel. The Library of Babel, yeah. It is internet thinking before the internet. It's beautiful. It's the least classic path to uh, like being a tech entrepreneur that I that I've heard. Yes, I, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, exactly. It's like the the farthest <laughs> away from like computer science classes at Stanford that I think you can get. Her journey to Silicon Valley began after college. Aside from being a Renaissance literature expert, Katarina was also a painter. And after college, she moved to San Francisco and used her art background to get a job designing and building websites. This was when the first big tech boom was happening in San Francisco. And Katarina thrived. She ran design at an early web media startup called Salon.com. She managed community forums at Netscape. And then in 2002, she and her then-husband, Stuart Butterfield, decided to start their own company. It's a gaming company. They were living in Vancouver at the time. They had a small team, and they built this game called Game Never Ending, which was managing to attract a decent fan base. There was just one problem. We were broke, and we had spent the... I don't know, $150,000 that we had raised. And we had two months worth of money with only one person getting paid because the rest of the team, we were doing it for love. Mm -hmm. And 
the one guy who was getting paid was the guy who had three kids. So, you know, you think about this, you read about like the Donner Party and how it was a single man who went first. Uh-huh. And, you know, the married couples hang, hung on for a bit. And if you had children, there was no way you were going to die. Right. So it's a, it's a survival thing. Right. <laughs> so so he, was, he was the only guy getting paid, and we were the rest of us were eating cup noodles, and and you know we were selling furniture to make waiting, payroll, waiting to freeze to death, metaphorically. Metaphorically. And so Katerina and her team decided they needed to do something drastic, change direction completely to something that would actually get them all paid, and that meant pursuing this other idea that they had. As part of the game, they developed this interface where players could create an inventory of objects that they would pick up. That inventory looked like this sort of shoebox of photos. You could drag those photos into group conversations for other people to see, and you could annotate them, and you could share the photos with other people. And that was the idea that Katarina and the people on her team wanted to transition to. They thought that could be a more monetizable idea. But not everybody agreed. Everybody on the team had joined in order to build the game, and they were Mm. really into the game. It took some time to convince the team to build this photo sharing thing, which came out of left field for them. And um, I think our team consisted of six people at that time, and three of us had voted for building the photo sharing thing, and, you know, three of us had voted against. And so we basically bribed Eric, the front-end engineer, to come over to our side. <laughs> so we had to convince him. And then um, it wasn't clear that we were going to be able to do this at all um, because we were rapidly running out of money. And then this thing happened, which was we had not expected that we had applied a year before to the Canadian government for startup funding. Uh-huh. So we had sent this in for the game. We got a rejection letter and we kind of wiped our hands and thought that was dead. But then apparently we had checked a box that said resubmit for next year and we had received the grant. So we got this letter and I remember it was December 23rd. It was right before Christmas. And we got this letter saying, congratulations, we have given you, and I don't remember the amount, but I think it was approximately 175,000 Canadian dollars, which was huge. And um, that gave us about three months of runway. Uh Of course, they gave it to us for the game, but we were working on this other thing, which eventually became Flickr. And that was what made it possible. Mm -hmm. So it was was, this Christmas present from the Canadian government. Wow. We were about to go under. We, we, We were almost dead. And so when this showed up, and, you know, as, as entrepreneurs know, it's just a matter of staying alive mm-hmm. until you can get to the next level. And nobody called it pivoting then. Right. And it was not popular, actually, with the few investors that we did have. What gave you the conviction that this was the direction you needed to go, though? Your team didn't want to do it. You guys, I'm sure, had gotten into it because you liked the game. Like, that was the thing that you guys loved. Your investors loved it. What gave you the conviction that, like, no, we have to make this really difficult decision that nobody wants to make and go towards this other thing? In some ways, it was that we didn't have any choice, but also because um, there was something about this idea that seemed extremely compelling and somewhat inevitable. 
there were a bunch of forces that were coming together at the same time, which were that more than half of cell phones were shipping with a camera for the first time. More than half of U.S. households were on broadband, meaning that they could download photographs, which previously had been a very slow and painful experience. Right. So we kind of felt as if there was a there was an inevitability to it, and it mm-hmm. was also embracing the technology in a way that hadn't previously existed. So you do the pivot, which wasn't called a pivot back then. Um, you muddle around. What is What was the first moment where you're like, oh my gosh, this is working? It was growing so fast that we were constantly about to fall down. I remember there was this, you know, server software graph that we would have where, you know, this red line would be creeping up. You have so much server activity that your server is about to collapse. And we literally had the cell phone number of the customs agent down at Burnaby who would tell us when a shipment of a Dell server would be coming from Austin, Texas, or wherever Dell is based. You know, the custom agents would call us, and then we'd, you know, (laughs) we'd run down to the border, grab the server, run to the colo, plug it in, load up our software, and then you would watch the red bar go to green again. (laughs) And we we just did that over and over and over again. The thing was growing just faster than we could... We could keep up. We could barely keep up with it. And you couldn't. You couldn't. You literally were running out of server capacity, like constantly. Constantly. Yeah. Constantly. And I remember we would post. We would post on the blog. Uh, you know, sorry, the site's going to be down for a half an hour. And I would play. There's that song I think from the sixties. Going to a go go. Everybody, we're going to, and I I change it to we're going to the colo. Everybody, and then we put that up and and colo, <laughs> so like we are colo means- the colocation center. Okay. It's the colocation center. It's like the server farm, <laughs> and so I would put that up. I'd be like, we're going to the colo and uh, plugging in new servers. So bear with us while we have some downtime. Wow, you couldn't just go and stock up on servers like. We don't, like, with what money? With what money? (laughs) We could only buy one server at a time. And even then, you know, we were, our credit cards were so maxed up. We were, were, you know, we were, we were were going to Capital One, man. We were trying really hard. (laughs) I'm just staying above water. I took it, like, I had bought, I had bought my first apartment and put a second mortgage on that thing. You know, it was like betting the farm. I mean, really. So this was 2004. The company that they'd started had now officially become Flickr, and it was growing drastically. But that brought a whole new set of problems. Namely, they needed more money, lots more money, to keep up with the growth. And for that, they needed investors. But to get investors, they needed a bigger profile. They were this little startup in Vancouver, off the radar from what was happening in Silicon Valley. But there was a place that they could go to get themselves on the radar, to up their profile, to meet investors. It was the biggest, most important conference in the tech world called PC Forum. It was run by this well-known and respected angel investor named Esther Dyson. The team knew if they could get into that conference, they could rub elbows with the people who could keep their company afloat. Problem was... They couldn't actually afford to get into the conference. They didn't have enough money to afford the admission price to get to the place where they could ask the people for money. So they sent a personal note to Esther. And we 
wrote to her and we said, we really want to come to PC Forum, but it costs, it'll cost us $10,000, which we don't have. But if our company is successful, we promise we'll come back and bring extra people the following year. And got an email back from Esther saying no. And about a half an hour later, we got another email from one of her staff members who said yes. <laughs> and we were always astonished by this. And, and uh, you know, we, we said, well, obviously, we're going with the yes. <laughs> Entrepreneurs hear no, 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 no. When you hear a yes, when you finally hear a yes, you have to go after that yes as hard as you can. Mm-hmm. So we took the, the staff members' yes. And then Esther, the next time she was in Vancouver, I think she was serving on a board for a Vancouver company. So she was often in Vancouver, which is where we were based. And um, she wanted to know who these people were who had somehow shoehorned their way into her conference. And so we sat down with her and had breakfast with her. And she, at the end of the meeting, said, can I invest? How did that feel? Was it was it just, a, was it exciting? Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> exhilarating. It's uh-huh. exhilarating. It's it's amusement park rides exhilarating. It was yeah. big. You feel it. After that investment, Flickr took off. They got other notable investors on board, people like Reid Hoffman, who founded LinkedIn. And their user base kept growing. It was doubling month over month. And like with any successful startup, it wasn't long before other bigger companies started knocking on their door, hoping to acquire them. One of those bigger companies was Yahoo. And in 2005, Yahoo reportedly offered $25 million to buy Flickr. And remember, Katarina and her husband, Stuart, founded this company together. This offer, one of them wanted to do it, and one of them didn't. How they resolved that, and what it felt like, coming up after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome back to Without Fail in my conversation with Katerina Fake. So when we left off, Flickr was considering an offer from Yahoo to buy the company. Was that like an easy decision? Was it something that you wrestled with? Like, how did you guys, how did that come about? Oh, I I was very much against the acquisition and Stuart was very much for the acquisition. It was a, it was a divided issue, to be honest. How would that, how would that division manifest in, in, in your guys' day to day? Would you like, was it just sort of like discussion? We, I mean, I think what happened was, and Stuart's very good at this, he, he made a examples of or a demonstration of the good that would come from this potential acquisition. And honestly, all of the investors were on his side. It was mm-hmm. it was kind of me against everybody. And I remember we did a phone call. I was like, you know, Shutterfly is preparing to go public. Right. And I said, I, I don't see why we couldn't be on that same path. And I remember they laughed. The investors laughed. They're like, no, this Flickr thing will never be like that. Wow. And, um, what did you and think? I felt that I was kind of, I kind of felt outnumbered. What, what did that feel like? Just kind of um, bad. But I, the other thing, too, is that, I mean, it, this was 2004. Yeah. And there was, 
you know, there was no money around. It was not a time of abundance. It was a time of scarcity. And it seemed, I think, to most people that this was the most reasonable outcome. And I think it also, like, to me, that story resonates so much with me because I feel like I sometimes find myself in very similar situations where I'm I'm sort of like, I have one view, which is based on, because I'm the artistic one or whatever, and I don't have the computer science degree, and I don't put together PowerPoints with, like, matrices of decision points and stuff like that. Like, I'm the one who's just like, I don't know, I, it feels wrong or it feels right. And... I find myself in arguments with people who can sort of like lay out like, no, this is the case for this reason, this reason, and this reason. And it's just this really sort of scary position to be in because it feels like the wrong thing to do and you and you sort of want to argue it. But at the same time, you're like, well, what if I'm wrong? And also like, I don't know what I'm doing. It just, <laughs> you know, like, and now I'm probably projecting entirely into your situation, but w- was any of that going on with you? I do think that th- over time, I have, I mean, I I often find myself in the same situation where I am kind of deeply intuitively against or for something. (laughs) And then I'm presented with the data. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And if the data is unequivocal, I will go with the data. Like, I'm not, like, against the data. But, like, in places where there isn't data. I feel that this is right. Um, But a lot of of decisions we make as entrepreneurs is in those exact gray areas where there isn't data. You have, like, you have a couple. There's no data. There's There's no no data. data. It's... the future is a blur. Yes. It's 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 not you can't really see it. There are kind of shadows, you know, being cast forward from the future into the present. You you can't see it. Yeah. But somehow I think you can feel it. And and I'm with you on that. I think that there are a lot of decisions that you have to make in spite of the data and in spite of received wisdom and in spite of the fact that everybody is telling us that, oh, no, 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 photo sharing is all sewn up. There is oh, photo Shutterfly and Snapfish, and there's no room for you because that box has been checked and it is all over and it's done. And fortunately, we were naive and optimistic enough to ignore that. Right. And a certain naivete and optimism and cluelessness and recklessness and fearlessness makes these companies happen. Right. You know, you, you hear, you know, the kind of the Airbnbs of the world telling the same story. Right. How dumb is that? That you're <laughs> going to, like, put an air mattress on the floor of your apartment and, like, rent it to somebody? Yeah. Like, how weird but so you ignore that for the, and 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 we're initially very very successful but then at a certain point when it comes to the acquisition by yahoo that sort of that sort of um thinking actually carries the day like okay well we got this far but the board and and stuart were arguing like that's as far as we're going to get we we should just like get out while they're getting out it's good basically what were i guess what were you af- like the, you were worried just about the opportunity, but were you also worried about like what will it be like once we sell our company and like now we're now we're working for somebody else? Yeah, but but you guys eventually did did sell, right? Like h- how was that? The received wisdom mm-hmm. was that once you're in a big company, it throttles you, and you're no longer. It's no longer that feeling of 
the Hollywood road movie scene where you're in a convertible and the wind is in your hair and you're riding along and making your startup happen and suddenly you just hit a roadblock and there's toll booths and traffic and you can't move. And so that's that's sort of the received wisdom and that's how I uh, feared it would be. And so being the irrepressible optimist that I I see myself as... (laughs) I I decided that what I was going to do is I was going to learn what I could there, you know, and that I was going to have a good time. If the you of today were to go back to those, like, because this is your sort of your first big experience is like, you know, founding a company, running a company, and like sort of like having this big sort of pivotal decision of to sell to Yahoo or not. And so like you're you're pretty new at it at that point. Now you've, you're very seasoned, you're a VC, you've had many companies. If the you of today were to go back and have those conversations where like the board saying we should sell, um, Stuart saying we should sell, would you do anything differently? What would the you of today do in, the, in that situation? The me of today... I'm not sure it was possible for there to be a, another way. I mean, I could I could have fought more fiercely <laughs> for um, you know, for my point of view. I'm not a big believer in these woulda coulda shoulda scenarios. The way I think about things is that that is what happened and I try to live forward and not backward and Reflecting on what you have learned, you can only bring into the future. You can't bring it into the past. So I'm always baffled by those questions. People always ask me that. You know, if you could go back to your teenage self and tell your teenage self something, uh, what would you tell her? <laughs> and I'm always baffled by this question, to be honest, because I just don't. I I just my my you know I always think of that um, you know that Kierkegaard quote in that. Life can only be understood backwards, but it can only be lived forwards. Huh. Right. Yeah. And so I'm not sure it serves you to continually question if you had done the right thing because you did what you did and mm-hmm. it turned out the way it did. And probably and possibly it could have had a better or a different or another outcome, but you don't know if that would have been worse. Coming up after the break, I talked to Katerina about the thing that Nazneen and I talked about, about working with your spouse. And Katerina offers a very, very compelling explanation for why it actually doesn't feel that unnatural. That's after the break. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Flickr co-founder and VC investor Katerina Fake. I, I want to ask you about something that I think about a lot. Back, back when you started Flickr, you founded it with Stuart Butterfield, who was then your husband. Uh, my wife, she's not my co-founder, but she's she she works at the company. She's on the executive team. She's like a big. She's been a part of Gimlet since the very very beginning. And um, we walk to work together. We walk home together. We're in meetings together all the time. Like we're like talking about like the company is is our life. Um, and I'm always intrigued to talk to other people who've been sort of through that. Like for you and and your relationship. I don't know. How was that for you at the time? Well, I don't know. I mean, I have always found it to be a question that men are not asked. And women are, for some reason. And 
You know, I don't know how many times Stuart has been asked, so what was it like to work with your spouse? <laughs> yeah. Because women are, you know, women are frequently framed as um, their success is not their own. Their success right. is in relation to others. Yes. I, I, and I want to be clear. I, I'm asking purely as like sort of to trade notes. For me, it's like such a concept. My wife and I talk about it all the time. And it's exciting. Like it's there's like so many pros to it. Um we're always worried, like, what's, you know, is there another shoe that's going to drop? It's just, it's just a big, it's an interesting dynamic in our life, the fact that we're, like, sort of in the middle of this thing together. Once upon a time, and in a pre-industrial era, everybody's last name was Smith or Cooper, and a Cooper is a barrel maker, and a Fletcher is an arrow maker, and a Smith is all kinds of Smiths, but, you know, mainly blacksmiths. Mm-hmm. And the Weaver family had a loom downstairs and your brother would weave and father would weave and that was the product, right? You made mm-hmm. you made bolts of fabric, which you then took down to the marketplace. And your last name was Weaver. And your last name was Weaver. <laughs> and I'm one of those people who spends a lot of time in thinking about the impact of technology on people and culture and our behavior and how it can help us become more human and live fulfilled lives full of meaning, one of the things that I think about a lot is how do you structure your life and your work in a way that makes you happy? And thinking back to that time, there was a a book that I read by Percival and Paul Goodman called Communitas, and in it there was a graph of people's work and home life. And and there was this diagram that showed women and children were over on one side, and then there was this gap. And then on the other side was the workplace, and that was where the men were. This book was written in the 60s, and I think there was, you know, few few women working. But my experience, actually, after I had a baby mapped to this very strongly, and I felt that men's participation in the lives of their families and their children and women's participation in the work world were divided from each other. And that if you had a a kind of a life experience where everybody participated in living and the child rearing and the work all together and it all fit together, I loved that. And so I, I thought a lot about that. I think part of the reason that I'm an, an entrepreneur, honestly, is that I can work for myself mm-hmm. and design my work life in a way that I feel is very humane, in a way that people, many people's work life is not humane. Yeah, yeah. Being able to walk to work, and you say you walk to work with your wife every day, like that's tremendous. Yeah, it's, it's That's a huge. tremendous gift. yeah. To uh, to to you and her and and your family. Yeah, and it's very nice. And I think a thing that happens sometimes with like, especially with if one person's on sort of this entrepreneur sort of thing, it becomes it can become so all consuming. And when when you're in it together, like the downside is that all you talk about is work, but the upside is that like you are actually sharing this experience together, and you're sharing the burden of it, and you're sharing the excitement of it, and like it's a pretty unique experience, and it's hard to sometimes translate to so sort of like outside people you can feel a little lonely within it um 
And when we're in it together, it just feels like we're just like we're together. It's 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 yeah. good. It brings us closer. I I yeah. you know I'm currently you know yes VC I am doing with my life partner Yuri Engstrom too, and mm-hmm. so this is not something that a lot of people kind of understand or appreciate, and they you know think that it's odd. But honestly, I think that it was the way that work was traditionally always done. Right. As, as, as a, almost always, like throughout history, most businesses were family businesses. Most work was done collectively by the family unit. Yeah, I think you're right. Exactly. There's something about it that feels, that's so funny that like, I feel like throughout this interview, your, your perspective as like a student of 16th century literature is coming to bear. (laughs) (laughs) But like, you'd have this very global view of like, sort of like, oh, this is how people have organized themselves. This is how families have organized themselves. This is how work has been organized historically. And we're in this little blip. Um, and things are changing quite a bit, but like, you know, if you look over the larger sweep of time, what we think of as normal now is it, it was historically not very normal. And like, actually, being in the midst of your livelihood as a family family unit, that that that's actually historically more normal. Probably that's super interesting. Well, the other thing is that there are pockets of this in the world. For example, the Amish, who are characterized as anti-technology are actually technology adopters in mm-hmm. many ways. And they ride horse and buggies, but they analyze every technology. There's some kind of um, period during which the technology is is being evaluated, you know, like a five-year period or something like this, where they look at, does it bring us closer to God? Mm-hmm. And does it bring us closer to each other? And if it divides us, we won't use it. And so... It's a different way of looking at technology. So, you know, they've kind of rejected cars, which enable people to live farther away from each other, Mm. and cell phones, which they should really just ride up to somebody's house and talk to them instead, but have adopted technologies such as solar. Mm -hmm. And it's not that they don't have websites, but they distinguish between owning and using, and they will go to the public library and use the computers there and design their websites and whatnot and go online, Mm. but will not have them in their house, which I think is a very deliberate use of, considered use of technology. Right. There's bits of this. I'm I'm not sure I'm, yeah, I wouldn't, as a woman, want to be part of Right. <laughs> Amish culture. <laughs> I think there's fewer opportunities. They haven't for figured me everything I, out. Right. I, yeah. yeah. So yeah. there's 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 certainly aspects of Amish uh-huh. life that I would be deeply reluctant to embrace. But um there's other aspects of it which I think that we can take learnings from. Yeah. So I wanna I wanna talk a little bit because you have such a um such an interesting background, uh and how you arrived at this. I, I'm interested in how you think about this question. You are now a VC. You are in the, the, sort of almost by definition, you're trying to parse out like who's going to be successful and who's going to fail. Um, what have you learned through like sort of funding companies and through building your own? Like, what do you look for? How do you try to answer that question for yourself? I've always been very interested in, you know, as you can tell from my prior comments about work life and what do the Amish do? And I think a lot about, you know, the past moving uh, from, you know, into the present and into the future. I think about that all the time. That's that's, that's, that's what I do, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, what will happen? It's a, 
you know, I read a lot of science fiction when I was a kid, as well as Renaissance poetry. Right. And I I think about the past and I think about the future and I think about the present and I look at people's behavior and I, I um, kind of feel the tremors in the ground. And so when you, when I looked back at the most successful investments that I had done, they all had this feeling of find a parade and get in front of it. And when I look at companies that are out there and try to think about what does this mean to people and society and how people are behaving and how they're changing, what problems are they trying to solve? And where is society and culture going? Mm -hmm. And where do they want to go? Um, that's how we look at things. Do you ever think what would have happened if you if you if you if you'd stayed in academia? Yeah, I I worked out. I think I I took the right path. <laughs> <laughs> that wrapped up my conversation with Katarina Fake. If you want to hear more from Katarina, this coming February, Katarina will be hosting a new podcast called Should This Exist. It's a collaboration between her, the business and news site Quartz, and the creators of the hit podcast, Masters of Scale. Katerina will ask entrepreneurs about to release a radical new technology into the world to make the human case for their invention. She will ask them, how is it good for us? And she'll also ask a question that is rarely asked in the beginning. What could possibly go wrong? Check out the website shouldthisexist.com to learn more. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Sarah Platt. It's edited by me, Nazneen Rafsanjani, and Devin Taylor. Jarrett Floyd mixed this episode. Music by Bobby Lord. If you like Without Fail, leave us a review. Tell your friends about it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>